Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 21 this morning. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And as you're opening there in your Bibles, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you and, and open up to page 1227 in the Pew Bible. Uh, page 1227 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have your own copy of God's Word. And if you would, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading, the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them just to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, today we ask, would you please open our hearts and minds to receive your word, Father, and to be changed by it this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 75 miles west of Orlando, Florida, there's a small town there called Silver Springs. Silver Springs, Florida. Years ago, a man opened a tourist attraction in this area. He called it the Jungle Cruise. It was in this area that 
the crystal bottom boats were developed and different things like that. So it was a big tourist attraction here in this area. But it wasn't enough just to have this beautiful area, these beautiful silver springs here in this area. This man really wanted to up the ante. And so he obtained for himself several rhesus monkeys. And he put them on an island here at the Jungle Cruise. Why did he do that? Well, he didn't build a cage for him or anything like that because this man believed that monkeys could not swim. I can testify to you here today, brothers and sisters, and so can the good people of Silver Springs, Florida, that monkeys can indeed swim. The island could not contain them, these rhesus monkeys that this man imported into the area. And to this day, there are, I suppose, great, 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 great grandchildren of the original monkeys that were at Tui's Jungle Cruise in Silver Springs, Florida, that still live at Silver Springs State Park. There's a large amount of wild monkeys, and people come from all over to see these monkeys. Oftentimes, even, there's a boardwalk there, and visitors will be out on the boardwalk. I, I read this in an article. Be out on the boardwalk, and they'll get cornered by the monkeys. The monkeys know where to go. There's a monkey on an island somewhere saying, I guess people can't swim because I corner them on the boardwalk and steal their food. <laughs> if they were smart, they'd just jump in the water and keep their banana. But instead, here I am with a bag of Cheetos on the boardwalk, Silver Springs State Park. But tourists still flock to the area just to catch a glimpse of these monkeys, just to catch a glimpse of really the only group of wild monkeys in North America. It's a sight to behold, I would imagine. But what do we learn from this? I think there are a couple things we can take from this. One, it doesn't take much to draw a crowd. And two, even a monkey will stick around if you feed it. It doesn't take much to draw a crowd. And even a monkey will stick around if you feed it. However, in this chapter, Jesus is going to start to confront the crowds around him. And he's going to start to confront his disciples with something more than simply sightseeing. You need to come around for more than just seeing me. In fact, by the end of this chapter, we'll have two more sermons after today. That's for you, Nathan. Two more sermons after today from John chapter 6. And in the last sermon, at the end of this chapter, you'll see many people turn around and stop following Jesus. So you go from having something like 20,000 people following him to Jesus becoming one of the worst church growth strategists in the history of the world, he starts to actually reduce the number of people following him. The, the number of people that are actually following him begin to reduce. So they, he, he, he's teaching them that following him is something more than sightseeing, sort of spiritual sightseeing. It's something more than just being fed. They're soon to learn of his lordship. They're soon to learn of his lordship. We're going to do things a little differently today. I, I want to just walk you through this passage really quickly and kind of give you some commentary on this to prepare us, and then we'll have three points sort of at the end. Instead of walking through the passage all together, I, I want to look at these, uh, these two episodes here, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water together, and then I want to, I want to, I want to observe three points uh, from, from this text. So, so let me just begin by walking you a little bit through these passages and we learn in verse 2 that a large crowd was following Jesus because of the signs that he was doing. And then we learn in verse 3 that Jesus went up to the mountain, the Bible says, and sat down 
with his disciples. Now, this could also be translated, he went up to the mountainous area. Uh, most commentators believe this is what, in, in, in today's times, we would, we would call the Golan Heights area of, of Israel. This is the second, we learn, of three Passovers that are mentioned in John. So this is somewhere in the middle of our Lord's ministry. Uh, if, you, if you look at the, at the Gospel of John with the synoptics, you might come to the idea that maybe there were up to five Passovers that were a part of Jesus' ministry. But in terms of John's Gospel, this is the second of three that John mentions. Verses 5 and 6, we realize that as the crowd nears, Jesus chooses to test Philip with a question, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, if I'm Philip, my first thing that I would say is they probably should have thought about that. For they followed us up here in the mountains. That's not Jesus' answer. Philip gets a little nervous. He starts panicking a little bit. He starts, puts his hand on his wallet and says, Lord, I, I'm going to tell you, 200 denarii, that's about eight months' wages. A, a denarii, yeah, it's about eight months' worth of, of wages there. So eight months' wages isn't enough to give each of these folks just a bite of bread, you know? It was going to be like Baptist Church on the Lord's Supper Day. They're going to get just a little wafer, and they're going to go broke in the process. You know, Philip's nervous. Andrew speaks up. Doesn't seem like a lot of help, does it? Verses eight and nine. Andrew speaks up, and he mentions a boy that's got five loaves, and the Bible mentions it's barley loaves, which tended to be the sort of bread that that people who were not as wealthy ate. Uh, people who were more wealthy would eat wheat bread, but here it's barley loaves. We kind of We've kind of swapped out now, you know. Regular people eat wheat bread now. Now, the more grains you can stuff into one, that's fancy bread these days. But here, you've got these barley loaves and two fish. Now, I don't think he called them that morning. More than likely, these are dried or pickled, preserved somehow. Two, two fish. 5,000 men are there, we learn in verse 10. And you add in women and children, it could easily have been 20,000 people. 20,000 people people and y'all recognize that's kind of how it works here if you've got five men here there's probably 20 uh, of everybody else around and so at least probably 20,000 people are gathered around Jesus at this place and Jesus blesses the meal and and he and he prays over the meal and as it's distributed they don't run out now I don't understand how this worked exactly I, I, I don't understand where the bread's coming from is it piling up on the ground I don't know but John over and over and over again gives the picture, though, that, that it came from this five loaves. In fact, when he talks about picking up all the leftovers, he says there was 12 baskets full leftover from the five loaves, from the five barley loaves. He blesses this small meal from this boy, and as it's distributed, they don't run out. 20,000 people eat off a meal for one peasant boy. The people ate, the Bible says, verse 11, as much as they wanted as much as they wanted now brothers and sisters here's a miracle right here if you've ever been to an all you can eat buffet you've seen the damage some folks can do and here we've got five loaves and two fishes that are being spread out and people ate as much as they wanted nobody's sitting around saying well I kind of you know you've been to a potluck I really wanted some of that that was gone in, in about 30 seconds no, they, people ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, the disciples gathered up the leftovers. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. The people that are there catch a glimpse of the truth. 
the, the, the people that are there get a glimpse of the reality of who Jesus is in verse 14. When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. But Jesus is not done showing signs to the people and especially to his disciples. Another story John shares with us beginning in verse 16. Before that 15, Jesus realizes these people are about to try to force him to be king. You see, the Passover uh, was the great feast of the Jews as we recognize it, but it also had a real, a real national feel to it. And so there is a strong sense in which this is something like a mixture for us of the religious aspects of Christmas and, let's say, the national aspects of the 4th of July sort of all wrapped into one. And so everybody's feeling very nationalistic, and they start to see this guy doing these signs, and they think, let's make him our king. And, and, and you understand what that means to be king of Israel, right? It means that you'd have to overthrow the king who's in charge. That's the Roman emperor, right? Which is a simple, simple task, overthrow Rome, right? No, Jesus recognizes that people are probably misunderstanding what sort of king he is, and so he withdraws again with his, by himself, to the mountains. The evening came and his disciples went down to the sea, verse 16. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And so I guess Jesus had told them to rendezvous with him at Capernaum. Three or four miles, the Bible says, across the Sea of Galilee, they see a terrifying sight. A man walking on the sea. I live up close to Nakula Falls, and y'all, I'd be terrified if I saw a man walking across Black Creek up there, going to the falls. I'd be terrified if I saw a man walking across a bathtub, for goodness sake. And here we are, three to four miles out in the sea in a boat, and they see a man walking on the sea. And Jesus says to them, it is I. Ego, ego, I me. It is I. I am. Do not be afraid. And immediately, the Bible says, it, it takes you more than four miles to get from the Golan Heights to Capernaum. But the Bible says immediately, immediately, they were at land. Immediately they were where they were going. Another miracle. This is two miracles that happened. Three things then I want you to see this morning. Three things I want you to learn and understand from these signs of the sovereign king. Three realities concerning the sovereign king. King Jesus. Here's our first point today. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus here is demonstrating his lordship over the created order, over the things that exist. He's, first of all, multiplying food in a miraculous way. We know where food comes from, right, guys? We know. Now, Now, in the world I live in, the world my kids are growing up in, we're a lot more distant from our food than maybe some of you were. Many of you probably grew up with family gardens, or perhaps some of you even grew up on farms, and many of my family members did. Many of you have probably raised the animals you eat, and so you're a little closer to food than we are. My kids just think food shows up in grocery stores. I, I really do think one of, the, one of the problems we have in our modern culture, modern society... One of the reasons why people have a low value of human life is because 
uh, we have a low value of animal life because our meat shows up in cellophane packages in the grocery store. We get a little queasy if it's got a little bit of that red juice in the bottom of the package. You know, we start you know, gagging a little bit, feeling sick about that. When previous generations, up until very recently, had to know where their food came from, their food oftentimes probably had a name, right? And, and the Bible connects our view of human life and our understanding of the value of human life to our, to our understanding of the blood of animals. And so we don't see that. We're disconnected from that. But we know where food comes from. We know that food has to be grown, and it doesn't happen overnight, and it's not always easy to make sure it grows correctly. My last church was in an agricultural community, and every year the brothers in my church would not be nervous about You know, I get nervous because I'm like, man, it's raining on another Sunday. Golly, all these Baptists are afraid they're going to get sprinkled on the way to church. It's going to have to get rebaptized or something. Man, some of these brothers, when there was a real rainy season, they were afraid they were going to lose a lot of money. They were going to lose their livelihood, money they were counting on. It's not always easy to, to raise food. And yet here Jesus is taking a meager meal for one child, and he's multiplying. I mean, he, takes, uh, he takes Ford's lunchbox, you know, and he opens it up, and he takes out the food, and he multiplies it for 20,000 people to get full on, to get full on. It's an agricultural feat. It's a monetary feat. If you ask Philip, I'm sure Philip's sitting around here trying to figure out how many denarii this would have cost him. But he's recognizing this is a miracle. He is Lord of creation. And then on top of that, he is walking on the rough and windy sea. What a feat that is. What an amazing thing that is for him to walk on water. Con consider the weight of these two things that are happening for someone to be able to turn a finite, small amount of food into a feast for thousands and thousands of people to be able to walk on top of the sea. John wants us to see Jesus' lordship. He's given us this theme already in his prologue. John chapter 1 verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. <clears throat> Listen to what else the Bible has to say about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 but in these last days God has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and listen to what the Bible says and through whom also he created the world through whom also he created the world brothers and sisters this was a sign this was a sign of the fact that Jesus is the agent of creation. All things are created by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. There's not anything that exists that wasn't created on behalf of Christ. Every molecule of water that somehow miraculously suspended his body as he walked halfway to Capernaum over the Sea of Galilee, he made, he created, it was created for his glory. Every single small little piece of barley that was fashioned into loaves that somehow multiplied each of these fish were created through him and for him. He is Lord over creation. He is Lord over creation. This was a sign to the people of the time. It was a sign to these followers and these disciples that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord of all things. But it's also 
a son to you. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over all of creation, but he's, it's also a sign of the supremacy of Christ. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, the Bible says. So we must recognize that Jesus is supreme over all things. But I ask you this question today. Is he supreme in our lives? Is he Lord of our very lives? He's Lord of creation, and in reality, he's Lord of you. But if you submitted to him in his grace, brothers and sisters, he is Supreme. That's our first point this morning. It's the first thing we learn from these two signs of sovereignty. Jesus is the agent of creation. But second of all, Jesus is the providential sustainer. Jesus is the providential sustainer. Listen to what uh, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is, whatever it is the Father is, Jesus is the same thing. What the old creed said is he is homoousius. He is of one substance, one essence. He is of the same essence with the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a sign this feeding of the 5,000 is as we see a picture of the sovereignty of Christ that he's able to provide. He's able to provide. And each and every one of these people here that day saw the miracle. And they wanted to make him king. They, they see that he is a prophet, we see in verse 14. Listen to what the scripture says, what the people recognize about him. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus is showing his ability to provide for the people. And what they're doing and what they're saying is that they believe that he has fulfilled a prophecy concerning Moses. Listen to what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God, Moses says, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I, I think John is very intentionally highlighting this association with Moses in this, in this passage. Jesus then is the providential sustainer and is providing bread out in the wilderness for the people, a sign of his divinity and a sign of his ability to provide in a way that even Moses couldn't provide on his own. It was God who sent the manna from heaven. And that manna disappeared. You couldn't save it overnight. But here they gather 12 baskets full of this bread that Jesus has provided. He provides the real thing, the authentic nourishment. As we'll see next week, he is the bread of life. Jesus is doing something that Moses couldn't do. And the people are recognizing that. John is highlighting that for us, showing the way that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power and is able to directly provide for his people nourishment when they need it. Brothers and sisters, do you see, can you see how it is that your Lord and your Christ provides for you? He sustains you. He gives you 
what you need. You can say with the psalmist in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What that means is that everything you need in Christ is given you in Christ. And some of you, brothers and sisters, may be lacking today. Some of you may be thinking about those bills on the counter and that check that's coming sometime this week and you just don't see how the math works. Now listen, if I was on, I am on TV, but if I was getting paid a lot more to be on TV and uh, I was a two-bit charlatan in a polyester suit, here's what I'd tell you. Jesus took these loaves and multiplied them. He's going to take those pennies of yours and turn them into $100 bills. And I pray if I ever do that, God will strike me dead on the spot to keep from preaching a gospel message that sends people to hell, thinking that this life is what matters most. Brothers and sisters, you may be lacking, you may not have enough, but I want to tell you what this tells us is, is that Jesus provides for us, and sometimes it isn't exactly what we want or need. Jesus is Lord. He's a providential sustainer. He's brought you to this day. He'll continue to sustain you. He's Lord of creation, but that doesn't mean you'll have every need met immediately. Even Jesus' own apostles who ate of this bread right now had seasons where they did not have plenty in their ministry. Paul says, I've, I've learned to be satisfied with much and with little. Brothers and sisters, we must trust Jesus that he will give us everything we need to be holy. Finally, Jesus is the divine Son. Jesus is the divine Son. And despite the fact we learn that Jesus is trying to sort of avoid this crowd who misunderstands his role and what he's trying to accomplish, he nonetheless reveals his glory to his disciples as he walks on the Sea of Galilee. Listen to what the Bible says. Verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, there's one sense in which what he's saying is certainly the case. It is I. It's a way to say that. But if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when the Lord Yahweh says, I am who I am, when he calls himself the great I am, it's always and consistently translated, Ego I me, which is exactly what Jesus says. And here, several times, scores of times in the Gospel of John, John highlights what we call these I am statements. And so I believe that John is highlighting here Jesus out in the wind and the waves as his people are fearful. He says, I am. It is I. I am. Do not be afraid. And so looking at this in the context of John, I, I think that highlighting this statement is one more way in the midst of this miracle that John is highlighting the divinity of Christ. He is the divine Son. He is homoousius with the Father. He is of one essence with the Father. Whatever it is that makes God divine, the same thing makes the Son divine. It makes the Spirit divine. They are of a shared essence, though separate in personality. He is the divine Son. Here's the reality for each and every one of us today. You know, we can ignore Jesus all we want. We can sort of make light of who Jesus is all we want. Some of you may be 
watching at home or watching on the internet. Some of you may be in this very room right now and you may have been running from Christ. You can ignore Jesus all you want. But here's the reality. In the end, He is the agent of creation. Nothing you have doesn't belong to Him. Jesus is the providential sustainer. Not a single breath you take or a single meal you eat comes from anywhere but the hands of our benevolent Christ. And Jesus is the sovereign, divine Son. Let me sum that up in three words. Everything is His. Everything is His, including you and your life. Everything you have belongs to Him. Every breath you take is owed to Him. Everything you have belongs to Him. And beyond that, on top of Him being sovereign over you by, by the very nature of His rank as the Son of God, the agent of creation, the providential sustainer, the divine Son, you owe Him everything. But on top of that, He humbled Himself. He didn't have to humble Himself, but He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on the other side of that, God validated Him as the agent of crea creation and the providential sustainer and the divine Son by not letting death keep its grip on him in the grave. Instead, death loosed its grip on him and Jesus Christ was raised in power and in glory and now he has ascended to the very right hand of God and he offers to you today not judgment, brothers and sisters, for snubbing the Creator. Brothers and sisters, not, not wrath today does he offer you for snubbing his providential care and provision. Not sovereign wrath for rejecting him as the divine son. But today, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus stands with arms open, offering you grace. Not what you deserve, but what he offers freely. Waiting for you to repent and believe. Today, he offers you more than a sideshow. He offers you more than a spectacle. He offers you more than a meal. He offers you life and life eternal. Today, would you turn to the Son of God? I want to offer an invitation this morning. The invitation is as simple as this. If you're an unbeliever, would you come today and trust Jesus for the first time? Repent of your sins. Turn to God in faith through Christ and He will save you. Second of all, you may be a believer and you say, I've not lived according to Jesus' law and rules like I should. I'd love to pray today, Pastor. This altar is open for you. And finally, I'd love to talk to you about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. God, we thank you for what he has revealed to us about himself. God, what you've revealed about him in your word. God, we thank you for the fact that we were made through him and for him, that he is God, the, the creator, the agent of creation. We thank you for his providence, the way he sustains our life. He's our providential sustainer. And oh, God, we praise you for the fact that you sent your divine son into the world to become flesh. God, would you move in our hearts today that we might be changed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.